Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 29, Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? And join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. As always, I'm Tom Paneris, and I am joined by my co-host... She is the Jean Valjean to my Thernardier. Possibly. Interesting. Hmm. Perhaps okay. she's Javert and I'm Jean Valjean. I don't think I'm as oh good as Jean gosh. Valjean. Oh my gosh. I don't so, think I'm no, Javert. Not, not, there's, there's no shipping between the two of us, so neither of us is Cosette, Marius, or even Eponine. But <laughs> oh. she is Stella. That I am. Yeah, it's funny when you say that we've both read that we look at a, a piece of literature we've both read, and I was just mm-hmm. thinking, I wonder what it would be like <laughs> if one of us just didn't read, just didn't read the book, and, and I wonder what that discussion would be like. Maybe that could be a, an April Fool's joke. Maybe one. It's called, we just, it's called like we, our classes, basically. <laughs> that's also true. Yeah. What if what if one April Fools we just pick a book and we both don't read it. And we come up with discussion questions based off of, I guess, the synopsis that you get on Amazon and just see what happens. Like go off the cliff notes for like War and Peace or something. Yeah, just see what happens. Yeah. Or it should be something that people really, really know, but that we've never read. So then it would people would be just outraged with how off base we are on on all our thoughts and things. That'd be kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Or something like or something like everybody says they've read or they've started but never finished like the goldfinch or something like that. You know? Oh gosh. Well apparently that's interesting you bring that up because apparently the ending's terrible. 
I've never read it. So it's funny. Think, That's probably why they don't finish, finish it. it. But uh, yeah. Anyway, we are doing um, Les Miserables. Yep. By Victor Hugo. Uh, this was a long one. Um, this was one of the longer ones we've had. I, the longest. I think it is a long. It, it, it beats Don Quixote, right? Yeah, that was only nine hundred ish. Yeah, Don Quixote came up in class today. <gasps> and did you say that you were forced to read it by this masochist? No. Um, no, you're the sadist. I'm the masochist. Unless oh, you're okay. a mas- okay. unless you think you're a masochist for actually taking on the task <laughs> of reading it on the No, um, we were talking about patterns in literature, and I talked about different quests. And there's something called a fool's errand. And one of my students was like, "Oh, can you give me an example of a book that would be a fool's errand?" I'm probably like, I said, probably Don Quixote. You know, it's probably the closest thing I could think of sure. the top of my head because there are things I said, even if his if his quest in his mind is noble, there are things that he has sent on throughout that book, things that he is asked to do that are clearly fool's errands. Right. So he was like, Okay, yeah. So and I told him I even t- said to the kid, like, you know, I said it's a really, really long book and it's really dense, but it's worth the read. So Yeah. And if they're a, a reader, if it's someone who doesn't oh, he's, like no, he's a really, really it. smart guy. He's very okay. nice and, and, and really just is one of those people who like you really like having in a literature class because they have something to say, sure. <laughs> you know, so as opposed to just, you know, the girls I have to tell to, hey, be quiet for once. So, you know, but yeah, ladies are up. I don't know what your copy checked in at. I have a paperback copy that came out in... Um, I bought this at a used bookstore. Mine's a Signet Classic. It's a Signet Classic. Mine's a Signet Classic. It has the Broadway musical poster cover on the front of it. Cosette with the French, French flag. flag. Yeah, yep, that's yeah. it. Oh, yeah, so it's... About 14, what, 64 or something? Yeah, oh, wow, we have the same exact edition. It is, yeah. Very cool. Twinsies. Very cool. And we yeah. should tell people that this we're talking unabridged. Yes, Yes, and that was actually going to come up in my in my history. So, okay, okay. what is your history with this book? <laughs> my history with this book is really the adaptations of it, mm-hmm. and I was aware of Les Misérables. I don't think this was a wishbone topic. I'd have to look it up, but I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But I was aware of it somehow, mm-hmm. but didn't really know what the the plot was. And then I recall seeing the Liam Neeson starring as Jean Valjean fi- adapta- film adaptation. Mm-hmm. And this was shortly after my fa- my parents and I moved to Bedford, Virginia, mm-hmm. from Buffalo, and I remember th- this new movie theater was opening up, and I think very discounted prices. And my dad, I, I was talking with my mom about this. My my mom recalled that while she and I went to see Les Misérables, my father went to see Goodwill Hunting. So that mm-hmm. was around the same time that that happened. And then, of course, the musical, I think I've, you know, watching Dawson's Creek, for example, if you recall, I believe it's season one where there's a, like a Miss Something pageant and Joey, have you ever seen Dawson's Creek? Not very much. Okay, I just wondered. Okay, so I'm vaguely familiar with the character. I know Katie Holmes was Joey. There you go. Yeah, uh, so Joey's in a a pageant and and she sings on my own. And the amount of the sheer amount of times that you will listen to probably in your life on my own, it it just uh, it rankles me. I find it a very obnoxious song. I think it's also one of the top songs that you should not use to audition for a musical. 
so anyways, so I had known it. And then, of course, the film musical adaptation came out and, and I went to see that. So it all sort of surrounds adaptations. And it had been on my list. And I recalled you saying, maybe it was last summer, yeah. that to like, not the recent, but two summers ago, you said that you would be down for whenever doing mm-hmm. Les Miserables. And I thought, okay, I'm not emotionally at that point yet to where I'm ready to sit down. And basically, I mean, that's all, if you pick that up, that's all you're going to be reading, which is yeah. what I did for three weeks. And I, I don't know what gave me the inclination to do it, but I just decided, you know, I think I'm going to do Blame is a Rob. And yeah, I went to the the school library and it wasn't there. But then the library knocked on my door later that day and handed it to me. And I thought, wow, this is thicker than I thought. (laughs) So and then it just it started my little journey. And here we are finally tackling it. Mine goes back a little further. Um, it does mine, my entry point to Les Miserables was the adaptations as well, though. Mine goes back to 1989 because I'm the older one here. Um, I was in the sixth grade and every, every year the fifth and sixth grade classes put on through our chorus classes put on two concerts for parents one was a holiday concert mostly christmas carols a couple of hanukkah songs and um then there was a spring concert from what i remember the spring concerts in fifth grade had something to do with New York or something, but I I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember vividly that the spring concert in 89, which is my sixth grade year, because I went to an elementary school that ended in sixth grade, and then I moved up to junior high in the seventh grade, did a tribute to Broadway. So we sung a bunch of Broadway songs, like the theme to Oklahoma and songs from like Greece. I don't know a chorus line or something anyway. But I was in what was called the select chorus. So for the, uh, and for the, uh, the really, really smart chorus kids or whatever. And, um, we did a, we always did like special solo presentations and small group presentations. And one of them was a selection of songs from, Les Miserables. I remember we did, somebody did the solo from On My Own, which is kind of the memory, which is kind of the memory of this musical, you know? Yeah. Because memory is like the song from Cats that's like the big solo, you know, woman solo song. Um, well, oh, in Cats, you mean? Yeah, in Cats, it's like okay. it's it's the most it's the one that everybody knows like really really well. Well, I um, compare that and Dream a Dream. Mm-hmm. And what else did we do? I remember we did Do You Hear the People Sing? And I had a solo singing a very <gasps> edited and cleaned up version of the Master of the House. Oh my goodness. So without Tom. all the curse words and stuff. So with, yeah. with and you had long shaggy hair? I don't I don't think I had a costume, but I don't think they put a wig on me. Oh I don't remember. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, it was 30 years ago, but, but, uh, but yeah, so that was my first exposure to Les Miserables. Um, fast forward to 1993, 94, my junior year of high school and my mom and her coworker 
got tickets to the play on Broadway. So this is one of the only, this is one of the very few Broadway musicals I've seen on Broadway. And, um, it was, uh, it was me, her, my mom's coworker and her, my, her daughter who was around my age. And we had literally second row seats. Wow. Yeah, it was like we were like right there. They were a, a phenomenal seats, and it, the play just it just blew me away. It was really just outstanding. Lacey Chabert, who oh played, my, yeah, she played young Cosette. Oh my goodness! So when she popped up on Party of Five, you said I knew I know her. I recognized the name. Yeah, yeah, because she was she was. Just about a tween or so by the time she popped up on Party of Five. And the woman who played Fantine was Andrea McArdle, who the, her own claim to fame is that she originated the role of Annie back in 1977 or so when Annie first appeared on Broadway. So she was the first Annie, and that was. Annie, the, get your gun? No, Annie, as in the sun will come out tomorrow. Oh, uh, Little Orphan. Or Little Orphan Annie, yeah. Okay. So she originated that role. And had been in Brian. And there was um there were a couple other actors and stuff like that who um I was I was doing some research on the Broadway musical and I'll get to this in a, minute, in a moment in, in my um in my intro and everything that I recognized the names as I was going through like cast lists and stuff on websites. Um, but yeah, so it was it, I mean the play itself was was excellent. Um, the following year we were assigned this book in English class, but we were assigned a, an abridged version. What does that look like? It's a lot thinner. <laughs> I think I think they they excise all of Hugo's um, tangents. I remember reading it. I remember enjoying it. I remember comparing it a lot to the musical, so it was easier for me to follow because I knew the characters from the musical. My friend Kathy was the only person I knew who read the unabridged version for class. She like because the teacher was like, "You'll get extra credit if you read the unabridged version." Kathy picked up the unabridged version. So, um, and then in ninety, in the late nineties, I saw the Liam Neeson version that you mentioned um, on video. I think one of my friends rented it in college. We sat down and watched it in college, and then um, I have never seen the uh, musical adaptation film with Russell Crowe and Anne Hathaway. Um, so, uh, and then I read for, <clears throat> for the purposes of getting our show together, although a little bit before you did, I read the unabridged version that I'm looking at right on my table right now. So that is my history with the book, which goes, which, so we both have a little bit of a, a little bit of a history. It's interesting how our history of the book enters through an adaptation that, which is really, um, for a while was more famous than the actual novel. So but I'm going to get into a little bit about uh, the book, the history of the book, as well as its author, who is Victor Hugo, easily one of the biggest names in 19th century literature, as well as French literature. He is still celebrated throughout Paris. Hugo was born in 1802. He was the son of a high-ranking officer in Napoleon's army, and he was more or less what we nowadays would refer to as a military brat. He spent his childhood in Elba, Corsica, Naples, and Madrid. After Napoleon's defeat in 1815, the, the Hugo family settled in Paris, where at the age of 15, Victor began writing by submitting to a poem to a contest sponsored by the Académie Française. 24 years later, he was elected to the Academy, having helped revolutionize French literature with his poems, plays, and novels. 
He was also a politician, winning a seat in the National Assembly in 1848, but was forced to flee the country in 1851 because of his opposition to Louis Napoleon, who is also known as Napoleon III. While he was in exile on the Isle of Guernsey, Guernsey, sorry, Hugo became a symbol of French resistance to tyranny, and when he returned to Paris after the Revolution of 1870, he was greeted as a national hero. He continued to serve in public life until he died in 1885, and he is buried in the Pantheon, which is in the Latin Quarter in Paris. This is the place where other distinguished French citizens such as Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Louis Braille, Antoine de saint Expiry, whose body is not interred there because they never found his body, but there is a memorial for him there. And Pierre Marie Curie and uh, Alexandre Dumas are all buried. Uh, Les Miserables, which was published in 1862, is one of Hugo's most famous works, another one being The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I know you have read. That it was published in 1831. Hugo has an incredibly long bibliography of novels, plays, and poetry, which I am not going to list here because it is seriously enormous. Um, now, as far as what inspired Hugo to write Les Miserables, the main events that make up the climax of the book are based on some true events. There was a massive protest and uprising that involved a huge barricade that took place of, in June of 1832 and was put down by the government. While this is not as significant as the revolution of 1789, of course, um, or the uprising and revolution that toppled the government in 1848, Hugo felt that its principles were important enough around which to build a story. Furthermore, many of the characters and places that make up the story of Les Miserables are inspired by people that Hugo encountered and observed in and around Paris while he was writing it. The novel has been adapted numerous times. The most famous adaptation, which Stella and I have both met, mentioned already in some way or another, is the Broadway musical, which premiered in 1985 and it ran continuously until 19, 2003. Uh, since 2003, there have been a couple of revivals. There have also been touring companies and international productions. The creator credits for Les Miserables Musical are uh, the French version was Alain Boubel, Boublil, sorry, Claude Michel Schoenberg, uh, and then for the adaptation into English, uh, the credits are Trevor Nunn, John Caird, and James Fenton. For a while, it held the distinction of being the second longest-running musical in Broadway history, behind three hours of my life that I will never get back, which is the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Cats. I think that Phantom of the Opera actually has surpassed Les Miserables on the list of, uh, of longest-running musicals, because I'm pretty sure Phantom's still going. Am I incorrect on that? No, that's correct. It's still going. The musical follows the novel uh, pretty closely, at least the plot, without Hugo's various digressions and tangents into French history, which we will discuss. Les Mis is also sung a sung-through musical, meaning there are no spoken lines in the musical. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber has a number of musicals like this, as do Boublil and Schoenberg. Uh, their other famous music from the era, which was uh, Miss Saigon, is sung through. That itself was based loosely on Madame Butterfly. A number of people who are known beyond just Broadway have had roles in Les Mis over the years. I mentioned Lacey Chabert, who was famous for Party of Five and later on Mean Girls. Also from Mean Girls, Amanda uh, Seyfried? Is that how you pronounce her last name? Seyfried? Seyfried? I think it is Seyfried, but yeah, yeah, close enough. And um, somebody who played uh, in the Street Urchin cast, and I may have played... Gavroche, Gavroche mm. once or twice, uh, a young youngster by the name of Nicholas Jonas. 
or Nick Jonas. Interesting. Um, we kind of touched on our history with the musical, but did you want to get into it a little bit more um, from what you remember? Have you you have have you not seen the play live or not? Or I have not that? seen the play live. Yeah, so I've only seen the film adaptation of the musical, and I recently okay. I saw that when I was out in theaters, and then I mm-hmm. recently rewatched both the Liam Neeson version and the musical version before recording this. So what's your impression of this as a musical? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say like a very unpopular opinion, but I, you know, I recognize its beauty and its place in musical, in the musical pantheon, I guess, or the Broadway pantheon, but Mm -hmm. it's just not one of my favorites. They're just, and, you know, I really love Phantom, and, you know, if, if I were to compare those two, and I just feel like there are some, well, there are actually a lot, where it's just like, if you're not going to talk, then at least have some movement in the music, because <laughs> uh, it's it's often just like, um, yeah, so that's going to be a very unpopular opinion. So I watch it, but oftentimes I, I'm just, so maybe I feel the way that, well, you despise cats. I wouldn't say I despise it. <laughs> I think that, you know, someone asked me, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the musical or the novel? And I really liked the novel. I think I would prefer that, though. I guess that's the same as asking, do you prefer the movie or the book? But with the musical, as I was watching it, I, if you didn't understand what it was about, I think that some of the quick cuts would go over your head because Mm -hmm. you would want, you know, about the bishop. And then I don't even think they show Jean Valjean walking out. He's just back again, arrested. And so you've got to piece together what he actually did, stealing the silver, Mm -hmm. things like that. And just moments where you have to fill in the blanks. And of course, seeing the film musical adaptation is that's still diluted. I think there were like they shortened some of the numbers and there might be numbers that aren't even in there. I don't know. So seeing the stage version might might increase that. But I just feel like and I was telling this to somebody as well that I don't know if the characters are as well developed necessarily as as the book, of course. But the book has time to do that. But I just think that there's more that you could potentially get from some of the people like Jean Valjean and, and Javert and. Marius, I think, would be a big cosette is, I mean, yeah. eh. but Marius, I think, absolutely, like, especially the relationship with his grandfather, because you just see him as a revolutionary, and mm-hmm. that's not how it all began, as as we see in the novel. Yeah. Well, this is my, and like I said, I'm I'm thinking about what I saw 25 years ago, so my, and I, I never really did see the, the, that did see the movie version of the musical, but that is a fair assessment. I do remember that what I remember the most is like the fact that it's very conducive to the, the the big solo in places, and I know that one of the more popular things that was done with this and um, that used to be on sale and broadcast on PBS were like the concert performances of this, where instead of being acted out and performed in terms of the action on the stage, the cast would be in full costume, but they would sing it as if it were you know, like Pavarotti on stage or something, just essentially singing all the parts, singing through the, through the, uh, through the musical itself, but without the performances. And those were pretty popular for a while too. 
from what I understand. And I know they used to air them in on PBS, and they used to see they used to show them in like Blockbuster and Suncoast every once in a while when I would go in there and stuff. But no, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it is. This is one of those novels where, like, if you are adapting it, you have to cut or trim quite a bit to fit it inside a certain time frame because it is a very large novel, you know. So, um, it's been adapted several other times as a, in addition to the musical, um, you have a 1935 film directed by Richard Boleslawski starring Frederick March and Charles Lawton. I believe Frederick March was in the man who laughs. I think that's a Batman connection there. The film was nominated for best picture, best film editing and best assistant director at the eighth Academy Awards. Uh, the 1937 there was a 1937 radio adaptation by Orson Welles, a 1952 adaptation and film by M- Louis Milstone or Louis Milestone, I think it's Louis Milestone star and Michael Rennie and Robert Newton. Uh, there was a 1958 film adaptation directed by Jean Paul Le Chanois with an international cast starring Jean Gabin, Bernard Blier, and Bourville. Um, and uh, it was called the most memorable film version. It was filmed in East Germany and was overtly political. There was a 1978 film adaptation starring Richard Jordan and Anthony Perkins, a 1982 film adaptation directed by Robert Hossein, starring Lino Ventura and Michael Bouquet. Um, There is the 1995 film by Claude Lelouch, starring Jean-Paul Belmondo. The 98 film that we mentioned, a 2000 mini series on television starring Gerard Depardieu and John Malkovich. The 2012 film that we just discussed uh, starring Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, Anne Hathaway, and Amanda Seyfried. Um, This film received eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Hugh Jackman. It won three. Best Sound Mixing, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, and Best Supporting Actress for Anne Hathaway, who gave a speech that people promptly made fun of. What they make um, fun of? Its earnestness. Oh, it was very interesting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, there was a 2013 Japanese manga adaptation by Takahiro Arai, Arai, A R I I, to be published in Shogakukan's Monthly Shonen Sunday magazine, uh, starting in September 2013. Um, I probably could have clicked the link to see that if that actually came out or is collected anywhere. And there was a 2018 TV miniseries star by Andrew Davies that starred Dominic West, David Oily, oh jeez, Oya Loo and Lily Collins. My apologies to butchering these actors' names. So our plot. I don't think we have really much else to say about the adaptations. No, I am interested in watching that miniseries, though. I think it's eight episodes. Mm -hmm. The BBC did it because Mm -hmm. I watched a trailer for it, and Lily Collins plays Fontaine. And Uh in the trailer, they have her and that guy that she has a relationship with. And I thought, wow, you might actually go in depth because you're starting – at a place where everyone doesn't basically, yeah. you know, they ignore all of that of she's always has Cosette right away. So it might be pretty thorough. I've heard really, really good things about BBC adaptations of works of literature like this, like going into um, like the Jane Austen stuff. And I believe Jane Eyre, there was a Jane Eyre adaptation we talked about yeah. and, and they are very faithful. So um, that might be worth checking out. Actually we did war and peace. Go- 
couple years ago. <coughs> huh. So that's one that's somewhere on my list that eventually I might get around to. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's on my list too. That's, that's the one that Charlie Brown had to read on New Year's Eve. Oh, um, and he did such a good job writing the book <laughs> report, and then the book report like flies away or something. I can't remember. Yeah, and he missed the little redhead girl too. It's terrible. As for Les Miserables, the novel is epic. It is epic in scope. It takes place over a few decades, and it has many, many characters. Um, there are also several digressions interrupting their narrative. Hugo spends his time talking about the history of France, especially the Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, the architecture and design of Paris, which I believe you told me was also part of the Hunterack of Notre Dame. Correct. Okay. Uh, politics, philosophy, religion, and the nature of love. It's very, very similar to what Herman Melville does in Moby Dick, except this has nothing to do with whale anatomy. Anyway, for the sake of brevity, I am going to keep the plot synopsis for this episode to the actual plot of the novel. This doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about those digressions and tangents, though, so don't worry. We're going to get into as much as we can of this novel. I just want to save you guys some time and save my voice as well. Les Miserables is divided into five parts, and I'm going to confess here that I did a bad thing. I did not write out my own synopsis. I talked to Cliff, and he provided me with a fairly decent summary of the novel. So here is literally the Cliff's Notes version of Les Miserables. You ready? Jean Valjean, after spending 19 years in jail and in the galleys for stealing a loaf of bread and for several attempts to escape, is finally released, but his past keeps haunting him. At Ding, Digny, Digbanner, he has repeatedly refused shelter for the night. Only the saintly bishop, Monsignor Muriel, welcomes him. Valjean repays his host's hospitality by stealing his silverware. When the police bring him back, the bishop protects his errant guest by pretending the silverware is a gift. With a pious lie, he convinces him that the convict has promised to reform. After one more theft, Jean Valjean does indeed repent. Under the name of Monsieur Madeleine, he starts a factory and brings prosperity to the town of Montreal, which looks is spelled very, very similar to uh, Montreal. But yeah. Next, Hugo introduces the pathetic young girl Fantine. Alone and burdened with an illegitimate child, she is on her way back to her hometown of Montreal to find a job. On the road, she entrusts her daughter to an innkeeper and his wife, the Thenardiers. In Montreal, Fantine does a finds a job at Madeleine's factory and attains a modicum of prosperity. Unfortunately, she is fired and at the same time must meet increasing financial demands by the Thernardiers. By the Thernardiers, defeated by her difficulties, Fantine returns to prostitution. Tormented by a local idler, she causes a disturbance and is arrested by Inspector Javert. Only Madeleine's forceful intervention keeps her out of jail. She catches a fever, however, and her health deteriorates dangerously. Death is imminent, and Monsieur Madeleine promises to bring her daughter Cosette to her. However, he is faced with serious problems. A man has been arrested as Jean Valjean and is about to be condemned for his crimes. After a night of agonizing moral conflict, Madeleine decides to confess his past. At Arras, the seat of the trial, he dramatically exonerates the accused. A few days later, he is arrested by Javert at Fantine's bedside. The shocking scene kills the young woman. 
That same night, Valjean escapes, but he is quickly recaptured and sent to Toulon, a military port. One day, he saves a sailor about to fall from the rigging. He plunges into the sea and manages to escape by establishing the belief that he is drowned. He uses his precarious freedom to go to Montfermeil, the location of the Thenardier's Inn. After burying his money in the woods, he frees Cosette from the Thenardier's abominable guardianship and takes her into the protective anonymity of Paris. In Paris, he lives like a recluse in a dilapidated tenement, the Gorbeau House, in an outlying district. In spite of his precautions, however, Javert manages to track him down. Valjean is, to f- is forced to free a to flee abruptly. After a hectic chase and an imminent capture, he finds a miraculous refuge in a convent. With the cooperation of the gardener, Fauchelevent, a man whose life he has saved in the past, Valjean persuades the prioress to take him on as an assistant gardener and to enroll Cosette as pupil. Valjean and Cosette spend several happy years in the isolation of the convent. Hugo now turns to another leading character, Marius. Marius is a 17-year-old who lives with his grandfather, Monsieur de Gillenormand, a relic of the old regime. In a nearby town, Georges Pontmossé, Marius' father, a hero of the Napoleonic Wars, lives in retirement. Monsieur Gillenormand, by threatening to disinherit Marius, has forced Georges Pontmossé to relinquish custody of his son. He has completed the estrangement by communicating his aversion to Pontmorce to Marius. Consequently, the young man reacts almost impassively to his father's death. A fortuitous conversation reveals to Marius the depths of his father's love for him, and indignant at his grandfather's deception, he leaves home. He takes refuge in the Latin Quarter and falls in with a group of radical students, the Friends of the ABC. Marius, who under his father's posthumous influence has just switched his allegiance from the monarchy to Napoleon, falls into a state of intellectual bewilderment. Material difficulties increase his unhappiness. Finally, he manages to create a tolerable existence by finding a modest job, living frugally, and withdrawing into his inner dreams. His peace is shattered when he falls passionately in love with a beautiful young girl in the Luxembourg Gardens. She is Jean Valjean's ward Cosette. Too timid for bold actions, he courts her silently. A fatal indiscretion ruins his nascent love affair. He quizzes the doorman where the girl lives, and a week later she moves without leaving an address. For a long time, Marius is unable to find a clue to his sweetheart's whereabouts and is overcome by despair. Coincidence puts him back on the track. One day, curiosity impels him to observe his neighbors through a hole in the wall, as you do. He glimpses a family, father, mother, and two daughters. I mean, it's like, okay. I mean, no, it's not normal. Why would you present it like that? <clears throat> anyway. He glimpses a family, father, mother, and two daughters, living in unspeakable squalor. Soon after, he witnesses the entrance of a philanthropist, Monsieur LeBlanc, and his daughter. To his immense surprise, his daughter is Cosette. His jubilation is replaced by consternation when he discovers that his neighbors are planning to draw Monsieur LeBlanc into a trap the same evening. Marius contacts the police and, on the instructions of Inspector Javert, returns to his room. When LeBlanc comes back, Marius's neighbor identifies himself as Thernardier, ties up his victim, and demands an exorbitant ransom. The plot fails with the timely arrival of the inspector. In the confusion of the arrest, LeBlanc escapes. Once again, the young girl has vanished, but Thernardier's daughter, who is selflessly in love with Marius, manages to find his sweetheart for him. 
After worshipping Cosette from afar, Marius summons the courage to declare his love. Cosette reciprocates. For a whole month, the couple lives a chaste and secret idol, secret because Cosette intuitively guesses Valjean's hostility to the man who is usurping his place. Marius's happiness is unwittingly shattered by Valjean, who, disturbed by a secret warning and the growing popular unrest in Paris, has decided to take take Cosette to England. As a first step, he moves to a hideaway prepared for this kind of emergency. Absorbed by his love, Marius has been unaware of the deteriorating political situation. Now his private crisis is echoed by the crisis of an imminent insurrection. His friend Enjolras directs the erection of a barricade in front of the Corinth wine shop. The first enemy he has to deal with is found within the rebels' ranks. It is Javert, who is unmasked as a spy and tied up to await execution. Marius, driven by despair, seeks death in the insurrection. He joins the fighters at the barricade and and fights valiantly to the end. Valjean also joins the insurgents, but for special reasons. He has discovered Marius' relationship with Cosette and his role in the revolution. For Cosette's sake, he decides to protect the life of the man he abhors. Before the final assault, Valjean volunteers to execute Javert. Instead, he spares the inspector's life and sends him away. Then Valjean returns to the barricade as the few surviving defenders are driven inside the wine shop. He seizes the seriously wounded Marius, disappears into a manhole, and undertakes a heroic and harrowing passage through the sewers of Paris. Unfortunately, Javert arrests him at the exit. However, he allows Valjean to take Marius to his grandfather, and later, in a quandary, releases Valjean. But he cannot forgive himself for this breach of duty, and he commits suicide. Marius's life has a happier ending. He recuperates from his root wounds and overcomes his grandfather's hostility to his marriage. The marriage, however, is a mortal blow to Valjean. He has confessed his past to Marius, and the latter, in spite of his magnanimity, slowly estranges Cassette from Valjean. Marius does not know that Valjean is the man who saved his life in the sewers. Without Cosette, Valjean's life loses its meaning, and he slowly withers away. Thernardier, however, unwittingly reveals to Marius that Valjean is his savior, and Marius and Cassette arrive in time to help console Jean Valjean on his deathbed. And like I said, that is the Cliff's Notes version. It leaves quite a lot out. Um, I had looked at the Wikipedia version of the summary of the plot, which is very detailed and probably about third time, three times as long as what I just read. But um, that is kind of the, the quick and dirty of... Les Miserables, or the quick and wretched of Les Miserables. Um, so I think we already kind of answered the question, but I always answer, ask this question after going through a summary of the book, and that question is, did you like it? I really did. I was nervous. Book sizes make me nervous a little bit because you are investing a lot of time in that. Mm-hmm. And... It took me about three weeks, and I would say that's probably pretty quick. And it took me months. Yeah. So see, but it is the only <laughs> book that I did. Also, I don't, you know, I'm not living with anybody, so I was only dedicating myself to that. I try to my quota each day is to read about fifty pages, and over the weekends I was able to get through about a hundred a day. So Saturdays and Sundays I was able to push ahead pretty far All on right. the weekends. But when I first started, I thought, "Wow, 
this is really pleasant because I, I was expecting it to be a bit of a slog and for me to really have to take my time and maybe have to cut that 50 in half or so <laughs> because mm-hmm. of the language or, you know, what have you com- complex syntax and sentence structure mm-hmm. and things like that. But it really wasn't. So it was another surprise. It's the third surprising book like that. The first was Count of Monte Cristo. The second was Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. And this is the third. Mm-hmm. So. As I told Tom when we recorded the most recent Backroll Oracle, it seems like the only author I have difficulty reading is Charles Dickens. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Professor Allen is grinding his teeth in rage. Does right he like now. Charles Dickens? I've not heard him speak of him. I don't know. He just, uh, I, you know what? I, I'm, I'm probably just projecting onto him. It's just his, his running gag with me and, uh, and my apparent distaste for... British authors. Well, we know that he likes the author of Tez of the Durbervilles. Thomas Hardy? Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm glad you liked it. I I like this, too. I don't remember what my opinion on the book was when I read it in high school as a senior. I probably didn't not like it, and it was probably my spring of senior year, so I did read it because I was a responsible little rules following honor student and read everything that I was assigned. But I will tell you it was so toward the end of high school that I was like, you know, it was in one ear out the other and in some way or another. So, but I had liked the musical, you know, but you know how that that goes sometimes. Um, The other time I've encountered stuff like that was in college where it wasn't that I ignored what I had read, but it was like I was reading so many things at once that some of it stuck with me and some of it did not by no fault of its own. It was just the amount of stuff I had to do. So this is one of those cases where it's just, you know, you know, I I, senioritis was setting in. Well, 1500 Um, pages or was it abridged? It was a bridge. Oh, okay. Was I was going to ask because my mom was also telling me that it was assigned. She might have been a senior, but I think it was well, one of those lists of like things that you are strongly suggested you read before you leave. Like and so she, yeah. she did. I don't know if hers was a bridge or on a bridge though, but she said she very much enjoyed it. So it's just interesting that I don't think it's anywhere on our curriculum where I work. It's not on ours. Yeah. Either. So I wonder if now they just look at it and they're like, they're not going to do it and then just scrapped it. There are a number of books, I think, that have gotten that treatment because of their length. I know some AP lit teachers who do Jane Eyre. Um, I did Frankenstein in lieu of, in, lieu of uh, in terms of the 19th century British lit. I know that uh, for a while, American lit classes used to do the Grapes of Wrath, but they've they strayed away from that in recent years, which is a bummer because I really, really like the Grapes of Wrath. It's on my list um, for – well, it's, it's one of the books that I would pick for this. But we're not talking about Steinbeck. We're talking about Hugo. And one of the things that makes this book so long is these digressions and tangents. And I and I made a pithy remark regarding Moby Dick because it's like one of those novels that's really known for these long passages about something that is not central. It is central to the plot because it's about whales, but it's like almost like textbook in its discussion. Here we have Victor Hugo going on. Um, the ones I remember the most vividly really have to do with like French history, uh, recent history, and political commentary and commentary on that history, especially the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so this is my first time reading it with all the tangents placed in and everything. I personally found some of them, a lot of them actually, really fascinating too. Like it didn't slow down the book for me in the way that it, you might expect it to. What was your take on those? 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, they all had their purpose. I will admit to having read those sections a little bit faster. So mm-hmm. perhaps I didn't yeah. get as much out of them as I did the rest of the actual novel with the the storyline and the characters and everything. I think my favorite tangent was actually about Argo, the okay. language of, of misery, I think it was. And just it went on for a couple of chapters, actually about how this dialect came about and the connections with like the romance languages. So some of the words Mm -hmm. that would pop up elsewhere. And I found that actually rather fascinating. And I think perhaps because I'm so used to Hugo talking about architecture or places or history that to have him go and talk about language specifically seemed a, a great change and so that one was the one that I, I really slowed down and, and looked at it and enjoyed. I'm trying to remember that, to be completely honest with you. I don't it, – it doesn't strike me as um... – It happened during the escape with Thenardier because okay. when they are – when he's hanging up on a rope wherever he is and his mm-hmm. two compatriots are down below, they're talking in a different language. And so Hugo has to, each time that happens, have a little asterisk at the bottom and then explain what it is. And then so they talk about it a little bit. And once they escape, he goes off and says, let me talk about this language. Hmm. That that sounds really interesting. Not surprising that you enjoyed that considering (laughs) that you – That's my job. Yeah. yeah. And um, (coughs) I was fascinated by all the the military history stuff, or at least Waterloo, mainly because – you know, I'm not the I'm not the biggest fan of 19th century history, but the but uh, the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, I do find interesting. So, learning about um, learning about that a little more, especially from the perspective of somebody who um, was it was sort of there. I mean, his father, his family was part of Napoleon's army, um, so he had some connection to it in some way. I know that he worried a lot about Waterloo because he was at Waterloo, like you know as an adult writing and staying there. And he was kind of enraptured by some of the history and things. Um, Thernardier, this ties into Thernardier as a character specifically because, um, Marius, uh, his father, um, Marius discovers a note from his father, uh, instructing his son to provide help for Thernardier because Thernardier saved his father's life at Waterloo. Although, true to Thernardier's character, what was really going on is that Thernardier was looting corpses, and he only saved Pontmarsay, who's, who's Marius' father. He only saved his life by accident. Um, he'd called him a, he had called himself a sergeant um, to avoid being exposed as a robber. So, like, Thernardier is just this character who is, like, just underhanded like the entire time um and we'll talk about him a little more in detail but i I found that i found that he was almost doing like he was almost doing like political commentary and historical commentary in a way that was like you know here's my editorializing about these events and that drew me in because i'd never really you know i'm used to seeing that when i open up the paper in the morning you know and and i'm used to seeing that in some more recent history and i've certainly read a lot about it um you know about say like vietnam uh, having in, in the Vietnam War and World War II and, and events of the 20th century. So to go back and see that political commentary and historical commentary contemporary to events of the 19th century 
relatively speaking, I thought was fascinating. So I did slow down for one of those, but I did, I did, didn't skip over any of them, but I would tell you, I would skim bits and pieces of others, especially when the plot was really going. I was like, no, 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 get back to the plot. So, because there are, there are parts of this book where I'm just like, yeah, this, it, it moves along at a clip that you didn't expect for something that's like 1600 pages, you know, mm-hmm. or 1400 pages, however long it is. But, when we when we mention Les Miserables to somebody and we mention the um, the thing that everybody remembers is something that actually doesn't really happen in the book. It's happened years before, but it's mentioned as sort of a character motivation or, or something that's really important in the character's background, and that is the initial crime of Jean Valjean, which is that, that he guy. stole yeah he stole bread. Um, for his his sister was starving, her family and um, her sister and her family was starving, so he stole bread to feed his family. And this is something that um, it's it's almost like sometimes on TV shows people will mention it as a way to like justify their own missteps, you know, that like to compare them to Jean Valjean. Um, and I don't know if Jean Valjean follow. I don't think he f- because his life story is so. He is so extensive in this book. He may, in some bits and pieces of this, fall under the heading of the literary term of a Christ figure because of the because of the good deeds he does, the sacrifices he makes for other people, and stuff like that. But I don't. I think that because he's such a main character, it might not. It might not exact be an exact fit. Do you find his initial crime justifiable? And are the thefts that he commits following his release from prison justified as well? I mean, he is he is a criminal in the technical sense. Um, do you view him as a criminal? I will say that I don't view him as a Christ-like figure. I think that he has a redemption arc, but that's not really... That's probably the better way to what, put it. Yeah. yeah. Do I think that it's justifiable that he got punished for stealing some bread? Yeah, do you think No, a, but in that time, bad guess that's what's going to happen. And I think that's why our hearts go out to them because it seems so unjust, but I think I don't really know what it would be like. I mean, they're not going to just slap him on the wrist. I think he's going to get something. He I guess his initial was 5 years. Yeah, it was five that years. That might have been a little to... excessive, you know, maybe a year at most. But then, unfortunately, he keeps trying to escape, and it just racks it up, and so 19 is, is the full thing that he does. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it is unjust. I think it's just that, that time in society that, unfortunately, they, they really get pounded to the flat. And, you know, that's what the French Revolution was about, unfortunately, just the fact mm-hmm. that the, the, the have-nots really had not, and the haves just were in abundance. Do is that what you meant by that, or did you, or did you mean yeah, more like Jean Valjean? Did I believe that he should have stolen that bread? No, no, okay. that's basically what I was getting into. Especially because we get onto another crime of his. He steals silver from the sure. bishop. You know, why does he do this? <laughs> yeah, you know, what's your take on that? Um, and what do you think that you know was it influenced by his experience in prison? And then the bishop. Bought back his soul from Satan with the silver. Right. He transforms. Like, you know, it is. 
what what does this do for him? We talk about the the redemption sure. arc. You yeah. know, what does this what does this do for him? Basically, yeah, I think there's why you know with sealing the why Valjean is that what you said? Yeah, why yeah why Valjean being the being the one who gets this redemption. of all the other characters. Yeah, I, I see a lot of similarities between Jean Valjean and Fantine in with the bread at the beginning just with desperation of course he's stealing and she's having to give away with with everything and of course really there it was either starve or steal with the silver and everything that he steals there i think it's more an act of desperation in the sense of he knows that there's not going to be any good life for him now because we saw that as he was going door to door and all they had to see was the old passport and he wasn't getting anywhere. And so he felt like this was his one opportunity to grab something that could maybe help him out for a little bit of time. Because who knows if he was really going to, to get a job. And I don't think I don't necessarily see him as a thief, even though I guess at the end he sort of considers himself a thief that he he was just sort of stealing time and stealing time. I'm with Cossette, but I don't think his desire was to be a kleptomaniac and, and always <laughs> steal things. I think it was <laughs> honestly for survival. And mm-hmm. when he, with the candlesticks and, and the, the bishop, I like seeing that, you know, I bought back your soul. It's, it's almost, I don't know if this is intentionally so, but the fact that Judas basically gave up his soul almost for silver. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, he is Jean Valjean's like getting getting that back uh, for for the silver there, and I think it's it's wow. such a powerful moment because number one, the bishop had given him hospitality, you know, bread and water; those are the the two things, zenia, if you will, that is so important, and it seems like it's still important in that current era, but was it? important to the the classics which victor hugo is a fan of as you could see in some of his diatribes and so he's given that after everyone turns him away given a place to rest and then he steals things he gets arrested he comes back and the bishop says you forgot the most important thing and and he gives this that and so i think there's so much confusion but he also sees for the first time grace forgiveness and love whereas he i think had just really seen a lot of hate and you know, the opposite of, of all those things, right? With stealing the bread, even though he just wanted compassion and, you know, look at my family is starving. So he finally gets to see almost a human being and, and how they should actually be treated. And I, that's that's where it starts. But I think it takes a little bit. It's not necessarily instantaneous. I think he is a little yeah. s- dumbfounded because there's that really weird scene. It, I read that a couple of times in the woods with the little mm-hmm. kid and yeah. he was flipping his coin and mm-hmm. the coin falls to the ground or whatever and Jean Valjean puts his foot over it and the boy gets really upset and is pushing Jean and then he cries and runs off and later he yeah. reports it. But the weird thing about it is Jean Valjean is in a daze. He doesn't even recognize what he's doing, if you read that. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that that moment is – because some things, you know, being saved and things, like some things are instantaneous. You absolutely feel it. Sometimes you've got to – 
it like washes over you and and you feel it in waves potentially and it comes and i think that's what's happening there and he slowly starts to realize and then we see yeah, as he turns into a new person, what he does for that town. So you can see that that change. But I think I, I like that it's not necessarily instantaneous, but there is a he's trying to figure it out and everything. But Jean Valjean, why him? I guess was your last question. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, why not him? I mean, compared to yeah. to everybody else, I think we needed someone and he's very much the the linchpin with everybody and he's able to impact so many lives either for the good i think for the most part for the good i guess you could argue with javier not so much but that was more his hindrances to himself that he couldn't get past things but he treated him with compassion and he forgave him constantly and freed him that i think it had to be the center the focal point to to be this this type of person yeah, and we'll get to Javert in a little bit because I want to I want to talk a little bit more about Jean Valjean and then um, get into Fantine a little bit because there's a there's something very there is something virtuous about Jean Valjean um, even if he makes mistakes and I, what I liked about him was that Victor Hugo gives him um, complexity in a way that like you know the ultimately virtuous good guy character doesn't necessarily have. Like he is a very human character. And as much as this is him fighting against say Thernardier or Javert or whoever, it is really, there's also a man versus society conflict going on in here. And that he is, he is being punished for doing what was essentially a noble act, um, not stealing the candlesticks, I mean stealing the bread, you know, it, it's a very, very justifiable crime because it was the peasants back in, um, oh, was it like uh, 1816, uh, sorry, 1786, or like right before the revolution, because he was, it, the, the story begins in 1815, um, when he's released from prison, he's been in there for 19 years, so he, this is the, yeah, toward the... the the end of the reign of Louis the Sixteenth, where the where you're right, the peasants were were destitute. So this act of destitution, he happened to get caught, and he he is a very very he's a virtuous character. And you're right, I, I like how it does take a while to set in. You know, the switch doesn't flip for a while, and 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 the theft of the coin from the kid is one of the one of those events that makes him realize like like what am I doing with myself here? And and you know he, things do start to fall into place. And then he goes and he saves. He does a lot for that town. Um, he at one point he saves that one guy, uh, Fauchelevent, um, from like he's like pinned under the wheels yep. of a cart, you know, and 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 he owns the factory and he employs people and and it's only because his past comes back to haunt him in many ways, either because he has to reveal who he is, like with Fantine, Fantine. Uh, no, with the not Fantine, with the guy who who is being gonna be put, essentially be probably put to death or at least be imprisoned because he is supposedly Jean Valjean, and logically, somebody would be like, "Well, that clears me. Nobody's gonna figure out who I am." Even though Javert kind of thinks it because he recognizes the strength. He sees him pull the horse cart off of Fauchelevent and sees that wait a second i knew a guy who was that strong and like because he was a, he was a guard at the prison um there's a lot of coincidence in this novel he was a guard of the prison um where jean valjean was was held and he was like wait a second and um and we're in the courtroom and then he's like you know no this is 
I am Jean Valjean, you know, this is not him. So he does the virtuous thing there, even though it's at the cost of his own freedom. And um, that comes up, you know, at least another time toward the end of the novel, too, where he saves Javert's life. Um, or at least until Javert decides to kill himself. <laughs> but, you know, he, he does these things that, you know, any other person who was really only acting in his self-interest would not, you know, if somebody was really protective of his self-interest would not have saved the fake Jean Valjean from, from punishment, you know, yeah. he would have counted it as a blessing because in his mind, the case is closed. Somebody else went to jail and then maybe the guilt, you know, that is the easy way out. But, you know, here's somebody who has a sense of conscience and guilt and things. And he saves, you know, and this is something, Fantine, so her backstory is essentially that she and her friends... Friends, with quotation marks. Yeah, get get shipped with <laughs> a, these three guys, and her guy is named Felix, and he knocks her up, and he's kind of like later, like, you know, he really was never in love with her, it's just like, you know, summer love and have blast, you know? <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Which, would you prefer wham, bam, thank you, ma'am? I was trying to be the oldest. No, that's fine. Um, when, so, so she is an mother, and and um, she desperately gives the baby Cosette to the Thernardier, which is, you know, she, she couldn't have known. In fact, later on, she doesn't know how they use her for forced labor. <laughs> Um, and they keep extorting money from her too. And she gets this job and, and I can't remember. Oh, she's fired because she has a daughter because she has the daughter because they, uh, because people discover or the manager of the factory or Jean-Bilson or whatever, discover that she had a daughter out of wedlock, which is like, you know, a total no, no in society back then. So they continue extorting money from her. She turns to prostitution. So we have this, this society that is so quick to re- reject her and reject Jean Valjean for essentially their pasts, you know, and it, it it's I mean it doesn't surprise me because our society will still do that to people, um, sometimes rightfully so and sometimes not. But why, you know, is is he is Hugo making a point about that about the the cruelty of society and, and the fellow man that people are inherently <laughs> judgmental because they'll never give Jean Valjean work and he has to kind of cheat his way into it, um, and Fantine gets rejected because she happened to have an indiscretion with a male counterpart and now has a daughter and they're essentially punishing the daughter as well. What's your take? I don't. Uh, well, I, do you really think the? Uh, I mean, the uh, Tenardiers are not judging Fontaine. I think they're certainly taking advantage of her. Oh yes, but her lifestyle of all people. Do you think they would be judging her? I think they would because I think they. I think because they can pass judgment on somebody like her and feel superior because they are low. Interesting. I mean, because do they not represent like just some of the lowest aspects of human nature? 
Yes. But I just don't don't see... Had they interacted in that manner, I just don't know that I would have seen them as... I mean, they have a house of prostitutes. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. part of their little shtick there, unless that wasn't in the book and is just in the musical. But we can assume that there are some people there. I just don't know if I see them ever pointing a finger. I mean, her workplace, like everything else, I'm on board with what you said, but not coming from them. It's it's not a pointing a finger of blame and shame. It's a feeling of superiority. Mm you know that they're a level above cuz it's a it's like a bullying principle you find that one person who is beneath you in some way or another and you bully them um even if you are not exactly high person on the ladder and you know yeah they take advantage of her and they they get her money and perhaps they employ people of of you know in a house of ill repute but they seem to they might be the type who act above, like you know that they're that they're kind of like a slightly higher class than them because they can feel superior. You know, they may not publicly shame these people, uh, but there is an air about them. And perhaps he was pulling from something like a Cinderella type of story because they they do kind of pull a Cinderella on Cosette, you know, because sure. they have they have two daughters and they have a son. They have the son. It's Gavroche, I believe, is their son. Uh, yeah, and I think and they have two other sons too. Epin, yeah, and I know the the other two who play a more who play a a, a role in the, in the novel, Eponine, and I can't remember the other. Oh, I can't remember the other name, the other daughter's name, but um, but basically, um, they are they're kind of the they're, they're kind of the evil stepsisters when she's a kid. So there's a it it did remind me a little bit of the like you know, and I think in the musical it's like there's a castle and a cloud yep. or something. Is this? That's one of the songs that had to be sung in that thing that I was in sixth grade. But yeah, there's this, there's just this, this underhandedness of them. And they're always, they're they're the closest we have to a villain in this entire. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, they keep the fact that they keep coming back no matter what. Mm -hmm. And they somehow keep, well, at least the mister keeps stumbling upon Mm -hmm. Jean Valjean is very yeah. interesting whether he recognizes it or not. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe Jean Valjean didn't recognize him, number one. And number two was playing right into his hands the second time. I was very frustrated with him. But, you know, if if I ignore the Thenardiers, I would say that I think Victor Hugo is commenting on society as a whole and humankind because mm-hmm. a lot of it, and this is an issue that we have in modern times, People do pass judgment or question or look down upon somebody for an outward characteristic or action without understanding or knowing what has been placed behind that characteristic or action. So the fact that, I mean, this could all be summarized. Well, it could be summarized in a lot of things, but I'll just take Fontaine, for instance. The fact that she's working hard, she's not doing anything immoral currently. You know, the dalliance was, I guess, eight years past, and she's just trying to make ends meet for her daughter and everything. But the people that are working with her decide, you know, clearly this means she's up to no good. She was immoral then. She's got to be immoral now. And they boot her out in in that, that 
wrecks everything for her. So without getting to know the person behind that, yeah, I, I feel like there is a bit of a, a commentary on that. But, you know, it's a consistent thing, which is sad. When was this written? 1862. Okay. Well, we're in 2019, and that's still an mm-hmm. issue. So, you know, Hugo, I don't know oh, if he yeah. was ahead of his time or not, but I, I would say that he is saying something about it. Yeah, there's still plenty of people who look down upon... Look down, look down. <laughs> <laughs> we should upon... try to tie in as much musical, uh, uh, much of the musical into this episode. So we've got two right uh... now, so let's see what we can do. <laughs> Was it Thernardi? Thernardi is the uh, is the master. Of Daddy the house. is master of the house. I don't remember the words, but I do remember yeah. the tune. I mean, she might as well like when she's fired the factory. She might as well be ha- wearing a scarlet A on her yeah. on her robe. I mean, it's it's just that, and it 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 God it bothers me so much because you're right. I mean, it was one indiscretion eight years ago, but she's like tainted by this because this is the way society works. And the Thenardiers are there just to just to take advantage of her, yeah. uh, which makes them just very despicable people. Um, but then you have Javert, and Javert is he, I mean, Javert is a cop. He's a cop through the entire book. <laughs> So he really has no, I think he gets pretty promoted too. So he, he does not have a fall from grace in the way that some of the other characters do. Like by the time they're all in Paris, Jean Valjean is essentially in hiding, you know, kind of living this pauper's life, living hand to mouth. I believe he's got Rich's stash somewhere, but he can't necessarily get to them because he's, he's That's been when a, they're, on the run they're for years. They're in the buried beneath that tree. Yeah. So he's been on the run for years, right? Thernardier has lost everything at that point, you know, and we'll talk about the coincidence that kind of brings the fact that they're they're essentially like all in the same block. Um, But Javert is, by all accounts in society, an upstanding member of society. He is a police inspector. But his thing is like he's obsessed with Jean Valjean. Or he becomes more and more obsessed. Do you, you notice that, like, the fact that he keeps missing him, he's like, Jean Valjean's the one that got away yep. in a big way. And, and he keeps missing him. And um, is is he is he too driven by this? Um, you know, like how would you define his value system? Would, does he, is he a villain sometimes? Is he is sometimes in the right? I mean, do we hate Javert or, or is it more complex? Well, I don't care for him, but that's because if you care for Jean Valjean, I think it might Mm -hmm. be hard. I mean, it's not impossible, but it might be hard to care for Javert. His value system, I think, is very, very, very black and white, like really stark. Mm -hmm. There is no gray whatsoever. And the problem with that is that there's no give and there's no grace and compassion with him. It's either you're doing what you should be doing or you are not. And so the issue comes into play when there's a bit of a confusion, for example, and this apparently according to IMDB trivia, Victor Hugo actually witnessed a prostitute get in a scuffle with a potential John and he basically accosts her, shoves snow down her dress and then she goes after him and, uh, but Hugo himself actually pled 
in her defense and helped him out. So, eh, I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not. That was IMDb trivia, so who knows. But all that to say, because I was talking about that scene, the fact that she is harassed by a gentleman that's probably in a higher social class than she, and Mm -hmm. she defends herself, but she's the one who gets arrested, and Javert shows, I mean, he basically wants to lock her up no matter what, and Jean Valjean has to lay down the law and prevent him from doing so by being the mayor. That's case in point Mm -hmm. number one, that there's no, you know, just because she has this particular job doesn't mean that she wasn't a victim in that circumstance, but he doesn't see that. He just sees someone who's not doing what she should be doing, so clearly she should be arrested. Then you've got the instances where Jean Valjean says please give me such and such amount of time for me to do my business and then you can take me away. And there's no give with that at all. And Valjean even is explaining what it, I mean, it's not for him personally, you know, he's trying to get Cossette, he's trying to get Marius back to safety and health. At least that one, he allowed that one. He got to budge a little bit, but it, it, his black and white belief system unfortunately goes in the way of like people's safety as well (laughs) and Mm um yeah so i I think it's uh he's admirable in the fact that he's a virtuous character but it's it's the point where your virtues are almost a hindering block and you're not able to look past it and see that the, the circumstances are more complex so you have to think up something new rather than just throw them in jail yeah, in a way, he kind of represents that um, the very harsh view that society seems to have of these characters and the reason they get in trouble that we were just talking about in the first place. The fact that Fantine, um, you know, is is paying for a mistake that she made, for lack of a better word, um, years ago by getting, you know, getting pregnant out of wedlock and that Jean Valjean is still paying for the crime that he committed and did his time for. Um, and that there is no, there does not seem to be, at least in the conventions of the society and sometimes with human nature, there doesn't seem to be a, a allowance for the complexity, right. you know, things like that. And, and there is a, you're talking about Ternardier a little bit, the, the kind of lack of empathy that goes on when society judges people for their actions. And you're right. The fact that he, and he is very symbolic of the, he, he essentially symbolized the law as well. And, and, you know, the idea that a lot of people hold the law to be very defined, you know, do you think his suicide he commits suicide at the end? So I know we're kind of jumping to the end of the novel here, but I think Javert, Javert has a very, very clear story. You know, he, he keeps running into Jean Valjean. He keeps being, outwitted in some way or another and he can't catch him, he can't bring him to what he perceives as justice, then he is sent in by the government to spy on the rebels. Of course. And he's un- he, he's unmasked. And he's tied to a stake and he's going to be executed. And Jean Valjean decides to... Ex- is he, he volunteers to do the execution but he lets him go. And then... Um, you know, they ch- the chase through the sewer and everything, and eventually he essentially lets Valjean go. He is conflicted by the fact that he has this duty to the law, and he kills himself over it. So is that is that him changing or growing as a character, or is that him so trapped in his in what he's been always been that there's no way to 
there's no way out and he, you know no way out no way out i think i think he's trapped i'll take the ladder bob for two mm-hmm. for two points <laughs> i think it's it's almost for me it almost mirrors the candlestick situation with Jean Valjean. Like I Mm -hmm. said, he was contemplating it, didn't understand it, but he was able to grasp it to a certain extent and turn his life around. And Jean Valjean, Mm -hmm. after being freed, nope, Javert, after being freed by Valjean and, you know, could have been shot, could have been knifed because there are those two possibilities, doesn't understand what this is. You know, after everything that he has done, being like hunted, you know, by a pack of dogs, if Javert were the dogs, he doesn't understand. I think he he just he can't move past it. Yeah, I I think it's yeah, I think the compassion thing is odd. After all of this, he's you know, he's forgiven me. He has compassion for me. He saved me. And I think part of it might be that, you know, he did, in fact, I guess, break the law. You know, he aided a fugitive. But I, I honestly think he's just trapped in his moral code and he can't get past it. And he's very confused as why Valjean helped him. It also kind of mirrors, and we'll get to Marius in a little bit, the fact that, like, he's carrying Marius. And Marius has a similar arc with Valjean where he ends up forgiving him. And they live. he lives happily ever after with Cosette. And yeah. Valjean can die in peace because... You know, Marius, who has been condemning him because, you know, they get married and he confesses to Marius, like, I'm an ex-convict and he's horrified and he assumes the worst about him in that same way that Javert would have. You know, that idea that, you know, here's this is, again, society like you're an ex-con. Oh, my God, you must be a horrible person. And at the end, um, uh you know, Thernardier is still involved with this, and he's trying to convince Marius that Valjean's actually a murderer. And then eventually, he Marius uh, discovers that this is the guy who saved him in the sewers after the revolution. And he's like, "Oh wait, you know, I've been wrong this whole time." And um, there's a reconciliation between Cosette and Valjean that is really all he wanted at the end because he dies peacefully you know so there's that there is that sense that marius does (laughs) marius could go back to being this sort of very judgmental person which i never really got the impression that he necessarily was but i mean he could follow along doing everything else that society has done to this guy the whole time and he and he he is the one to turn around and say wait a second i was wrong um so it kind of mirrors or is juxtaposed with what Javert did at the end there to just give us another another take on it. Um, but they, they all do kind of... Um, <clears throat> they all do kind of uh, encounter one another, and it, and it begins... Javert and... Javert and uh, Jean Valjean are at the prison together, but like, you know, that begins later on and that encounter begins later on in the town because he realizes who this guy is, etc. Um, <clears throat> you have him helping Fantine and then Fantine and, and this whole thing with Cosette and him raising Cosette. Is this, and if this is a major theme, I saw a major theme of repaying your debt and reconciling wrongs and things. And do you think is, is Valjean's entire life essentially devoted to correcting the wrong that he felt he committed when Fantine was fired? 
Like, is he making up for that his entire life? I don't think so. I think in the beginning, absolutely. Rescuing her, I mean, that's his one focus point, I think, in getting to her. And perhaps when they start in the convent and everything, but I think after there seems to be like a catalyst of the transition in the relationship between just two strangers that have no one in the world but each other and him actually being a father and I think it's when he's watching uh-huh. her sleep when they're in that little garden shack or whatever it is yeah, at the convent and I think the reason why he is so because I don't think he treats her as a duty especially at the end because of how I was going to say in love but I don't want it to sound romantic but how loved she is by him and why yeah, it's yeah. so hard for him to let her go I think if it were a duty I don't know that he would necessarily feel the same way um, because a lot of it you know a lot of his motivations and things at the end is is to protect her and that he doesn't want to lose her and i think you know with the duty do you really not necessarily not care but you know if you give up the duty you sort of pass it on and you're like now you know you can take care of it so i feel like maybe in the beginning but i think as a transition they actually became a little family unit yeah because he's going to escape to england with her because he's doing it to protect her not necessarily protect himself you know there is a he does put her before him um, gives her all of the money. Not that that's important, but you know what I mean. And um, at the end of his life, he tells her who Fantine was, yep. which is really important. It shows, like, you know, how... You're right, it hasn't been a duty. This is something that he... And, and he did come to love her as a yeah. daughter. You know, he, he it's, it's, it's in his mind, this was his daughter. And... and um, yeah, uh, and he confesses but, his past to Marius and mm-hmm. says that he's going to leave because if it ever comes out, it's her reputation that's ruined. Yeah, yeah, it's just like you know, and and it's it's there's something there's something self preservation about that, but at the same time, there's something selfless about that because he's not thinking of himself when he tells him that, and he's not thinking of himself when he says, you know, I need, you know, I need to when he kind of, even though he's kind of broken up, you know, it's like you understand why he, um, you know, he does that, even if it means that he's never going to see his daughter again, because she needs to have the life that her mother didn't have. You know, that's been part of, you know, that was one of the original reasons he was, you know, doing this, but you're right. It, 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 it does evolve over time, which is something that I loved about the book. Again, I was talking about how complex this book is, you know, characters change in, in, over the result of conflict all the time, but Hugo literally lets his characters grow up almost organically. I mean, I know everything serves the plot, but like there's a progression of age because this novel takes place over the better part of 20 years or something, 20, 30 years. So you feel these characters grow in a way that somebody would naturally grow. And I think this is a really good example. I wish I knew how he plotted things because it it mm. it's wrapped so nicely and people come back that you don't expect to come back circumstances or 
happenings that go on earlier will come back again later on. And I just wonder how he, I mean, it's, it's very masterful how it all comes back together. Do you, um, do you think that all these characters encountering one another over the course of like 15, 20, 30 years or even longer in the case of like Thernardier and Maris, like all these connections, these, this six degrees of separation, they all have one of one another or whatever. Do you think that is realistic? Do you think it's too contrived? I mean, what, what's your opinion on that? They all keep turning right. up. Um, and it seems like, and they're in, in different places. Do, does it even matter? Or is it just so well written that we just go? Does with it, it matter? Like, does it matter? I mean, does it matter that like it seems a little? Th- does it seem a little contrived that like Thernardier keeps turning up in Jean Valjean and Marius's life, or is it just like you know we just kind of accept it because we're enjoying ourselves? I think we should accept it. I think you know if you consider this contrived, then Station Eleven was contrived, right? With the little mm-hmm. points that would pop up in other people's stories with that. And, and I, I think it's just really deft storytelling from a Christian standpoint. I think it makes a big impact because I think you're going to encounter people and have people in your lives that are going to make an impact. And I think that there's a purpose obviously for everyone in your life and God has a purpose for everyone that you encounter. And so I think that that's very central here. At least I see that, you know, I don't want to shove a Christian message on there uh, (laughs) if there's not one, but I just see it as, you know, if God is sort of in this little continuity that we have there in, in Les Miserables, that these people all have a part to play and they're coming back and, and making an impact on one another. And, and I think that that works really well and it's very beautiful. Yeah. And from a literary standpoint, like I don't think it requires a lot of suspension of disbelief that these people would all find each other in some way or another in Paris, especially since the circumstances under which Jean Valjean and Thénardier find each other again are when they're both in a situation where they are very impoverished and Paris is probably the most likely place they would end up because it was probably the place where they would have the most opportunity to recover or live, you know, like, and they're in the slums of Paris, you know, um, Javert turning up all the time is not a surprise. He's, there's a cat and mouse game going on with Javert in different places. And, you know, the fact that, that it's explained well, the other thing I think is I'm looking at this and, and there are points where I was like, Oh, is that really realistic that, he, that, you know, Thernardier is, is connected to this person, this person, this person. But I accept it because I'm just like, you know what, when you start always saying that, and this is something, and maybe this is because I'm around freshmen all the time, and they always, they, they I, I always encounter with a few who have this attitude about like something we're watching or reading or whatever, and you want to turn to them and say you're not smarter than mm. the reader, you know, like oh that's this is blah blah blah, and they're, they're pointing out something that why didn't they? It was it's always well why didn't they just do this? And my response is because the plot <laughs> demands it. Sure. Because we were talking about Frankenstein, my senior class, so we were talking about something that 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 it was um, 
I think the question was like, why didn't Victor just destroy the monster at various points? And I said, aside from does the plot, because the plot demands that he doesn't. And they had like, the scenes had really, really good answers for it, you know, because they were delving into Frankenstein's character and what motivates them. And, but you always get these, and they're always younger kids and they're always boys too. And they're always like, well, you know, it's either, well, if I was there, I would blah, blah, blah. Or why didn't they just do this, this and this? And oh, how is that realistic? And I think if you start always thinking around those lines, you're never going to enjoy anything because you think you're smarter than everything you read, say, or, or see. So in this, I'm looking at this, and I had a split-second thought of that. I'm like, wait a second. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, that was why I was like, this doesn't even matter. It's like, no, because th- somebody like Thurnardier would have turned... Even if it wasn't Thurnardier, it would have been somebody like him mm. anyway. You know, all you had to do is have that extra person find out the secret and the fact that it is this scumbag, you know, this, this crook, this, this just crooked they person. Yeah, they always turn they're like a bad penny, you know that yeah, phrase. Or a cockroach in the apocalypse. Yeah, so so the fact that he's around, um, I think it was a little it's coincidental kind of dumb luck of all the things that Marius has to protect Thernardier in some way because of the connection to his father. But even then, you're talking about a war that was fought all over the country. The fact that these two served in the same army in a matter of speaking, or would have been around the same place at a battle like Waterloo, which was big. Okay, I can, I can, you know, people, people have weird connections to people all the time. Um, and there is a, there is this weird fam- familiar relationship between Marius and his grandfather. And his family. And it's... We can put it up against Jean Valjean's relationship to Cosette. Um, you know, how does it reflect or contrast? How do they reflect or contrast with one another? Cosette and who? Uh, Valjean. How do they compare so and contrast? The, you have the... Fa- yeah, you have the father-grandson, <sighs> father-son relationship, and you have the father-daughter Oh, oh, oh. We're comparing you know, those two relationships. You know, okay. Yeah, those I two see. relationships. Question M. <laughs> Um, I'm checking them off. Oh, no, that's fine. I Let's see here. My knee jerk is that there are no similarities at all, so I'm trying to think through this one. I would say let's. I'll, I'm going to strive to do well on this. So here, I would say that they both mm-hmm. desire the best for their child. However, how that comes about, I think, is different. They're, well, they're both pretty protective, too, I would say, because, of course, Valjean is leery, I would say, of the world and wants to protect little Cosette, and, and he doesn't trust Marius. And then with uh, Marius's grandfather, he wants to, the grandfather wants to keep Marius out of poor politics and doesn't want him to suffer the reputation that his father did. I think the extreme difference would just be how they are shown love, the kids anyways, because the grandfather, I got very confused. Quite honestly, it seemed like Hugo was contradicting himself, but I guess the grandfather's just a contradictory character, so that's why I was confused. But it just mm-hmm. seems like when he's living under his roof, the grandfather does not like Marius. But when Marius leaves, all of a sudden the grandfather is grieved and wants him back. And then when they had the conversation when Marius wants to marry Cosette, 
I, the grandfather is happy he's there, but also the words that are coming out of his mouth are that he's not happy he's there. And then he says that like terrible crack about, you know, have her as a mistress sort of thing. And only at the end, I think, and I actually thought he died, but I guess it was just mm-hmm. he went into a stupor because he was he had a heart attack or something like that. But then finally, I think they're able to reconcile and he's able to show care. I think with Valjean, he more wears his heart on his sleeve with Cosette and is kinder towards her. I'm sure there's some yelling and things like that, if, you know, some secrets. But overall, I would say that it's just a more loving relationship over there. But they probably they just love them in different ways. And it's all about protection and reputation for one and, and safety for the other. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of manipulation going on. Um, on the part of the grandfather too, like he he's he's trying to turn screws that might not necessarily be there, or at least that's what I got from it. You know, that there's there's an issue of control that might be going on, and you know he he kind of has to um, decide. But the, a lot of this a lot of this novel is about control of one person over right. another because we see it in Thenardier, and we see it in. Javert, we see it in um, even Jean Valjean to a certain extent. Not that he's controlling Cosette, but he's trying to control the situation in, in, in many cases. So the idea of what you have control over and what you do not have control over and how it affects how you adapt to the situation comes up quite a bit. Um, and you have Marius, who is so idealistic in many ways, like he's he's estranged from his grandfather, at least when he, to a certain extent, when he first meet him, because he has very liberal views, and his grandfather is, you know, a little more conservative, and uh, in in you know in the context of those politics, and um, you know he doesn't, and, and they have a conflict there, and he joins this revolutionary group, and the revolutionary group is it's you know it's not storming the Bastille, it's just this barricade, and it, it's a, it's essentially a suicide mission, sure. you know, they're not going to win this, um, and many of them die. I believe in the in the play, I believe Gavroche dies. Um, oh, yeah, the novel as well. Several bullets miss him, but he finally gets it. And they're they're fighting over. And uh, this is something. Uh, this is what I I got uh, off of Wikipedia here. The Paris uprising on the fifth and sixth of June of eighteen thirty two, following the death of General Lamarck, who the only French leader who had sympathy toward the working class. Lamarck was a victim of a major major cholera epidemic that ravaged the city, in particularly its poor neighborhoods, arousing suspicion that the government had been poisoning wells. So the idea of this is the workers' uprising, in a sense that you'd see workers' uprisings across Europe. You know, there was a peasant uprising and revolt in 1789 as well. You know, so it, it's not the last time, first time, and it's not the last time we'd see this. And they were. Um, the the friends of the ABC are the revolutionary group. They're joined by the poor. Um, they set up these barricades. There's essentially a siege, but eventually the the authorities, the army, whoever, um, you know, overrun them and and kill. In fact, Marius is saved by virtue of the fact that Jean Valjean escapes with him because everybody at that thing dies, including uh, Eponine. No. Um. And who confesses, and this is something I, I had pointed out, I didn't put in our questions, but I, but I had written down in my notes. Um, so, uh, Marius, Eponine is disguised as a yeah. man. She's in love with Marius, and this is where On My Own comes in. Um, 
because it's the big unrequited love story in the novel and it's the big twist in the lives of these people because the beginning of the novel Eponine and her sister whose name is Azelma you found it um yeah I found it Azelma um are the the stepsisters if we're if we're using the Cinderella metaphor uh, or analogy um, and Cassette's the Cinderella. And in Paris, Cassette isn't exactly rich, but she's a little more refined and she's a little more of society in a, in a matter of speaking than Eponine, who has basically become like a street urchin. And Eponine is hopelessly in love with Marius and, and he is unaware of this. And uh, she takes a fatal bullet for him. And um, she confesses that she's the one who told him to go to the barricade, that she hoped they would die together, and she confesses to saving his life because she wanted to die before he did. Is she, in this case, repaying his debt to to her father? So I wrote, symbolism of Eponine dying for him, repaying his debt, because he is a debt to her father because of what his father did for him. Is, or am, am I, am I... Could you say it one more time? So he has a debt to her father. Because her father saved... His father. His father's life. Inadvertently. Eponine saves Marius' life by taking a bullet for him. Has she now repaid the debt that he owed Thernardier? No. If Thernardier is mine, no. In our minds. No. Well, that would mean that Marius is even in deeper debt. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because now two Thenardiers have yeah, rescued. Two people, yeah, One yeah, has rescued true, the father, the true. other has rescued the son. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's a good point. Had it been the other way around, I guess that would have been. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't doing the math correctly. My bad. That is okay. Does that put then? So if it puts him further in the hole, does that justify the fact that Thenardier does turn up at the end of the novel? Mm-hmm. And he th- like Marius like literally throws money yep, at him and says my our debt um, my debt is repaid or yeah yeah he says because um he he's trying to convince Marius that Valjean's actually a murderer after all the whole um, Marius and Valjean being on the sure. outs after the wedding and then he uh, reveals he inadvertently reveals the truth because he says you know I have this piece of the coat. As evidence, and it's the piece of the coat that Jean Valjean tore off of Marius because he wanted to fig- he wanted to go back and find out who he saved because he had no idea who he mm. saved. And he's like, "Wait a second, he's the one who saved my life." And that's like when everything clicks in, and he literally pulls out a fistful of money and flings it at Thernardier, and um, he offers him. He basically pays him off. He buys him out. He says, "Do not come back here." Here's all this money. I never want to see your face again. Thernardi accepts the author offer, and he and Azelma, who is really pretty much the only one left, mm. travel to America where he becomes a slave trader. And that was my question. Does he avoid consequences? Aside from the fact that his I think his wife is I think his wife has died. Yeah, at the end, and yeah. And his kids mostly die. Aside from the fact that he loses most of his family, is it me or does Thenardier seem to get off pretty easily in this novel? <laughs> of course. Like he he becomes a slaver in America. You know yeah. he yeah I mean he doesn't he's able to escape jail. 
he doesn't get he killed lower. by Valjean. <laughs> of course, yeah, he gets off easy. That annoys me. Well, you did. We did talk about the cockroaches and the witch call. Do you think it's realistic, though? God, I think it's very realistic. And like I said, this is one of the things I love about the novel is the complexity and it's realistic. Um, it, it bothers me that as somebody so low decides, gets money, he goes off, and then he becomes an even lower person by trading people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> However he gets his money. I mean, he just wants money. Yeah, like, how low could you lower the bar? <laughs> yeah, but it's just, oh, you know, it's it, it's not a loose end. Because Marius wraps up the loose end with the money, but it's still like... Ugh. But yes, I agree with you. It is realistic. I can see that happening. And you're right. He's he's just... he's. They, there are people in this world who are just nasty people like that, and they never seem to... They, like, live, like, forever. And they, <laughs> they always seem forever. to turn up. You ever notice... You notice that, though? Like, there are these people... There's these very, very good people who die young or... Or, or they, they they have nice virtuous lives. They do nice things, and, and and they unfortunately they they die in a tragedy or something, or they die, you know. And but somebody who's just this soulless, disgusting slime of a human being lives into his like eighties, you know, like it, like it, it makes you it makes you at least you know maybe not seriously question, but it does make you wonder sometimes of the of the the balance of the universe and like, you know, what justifies the fact that somebody like Dernardier could get off like this. Whereas, you know, so many noble idealistic young men and women died fighting for their rights to, you know, or that Fantine, like, you know, who was trying to do right by her daughter died of a sickness or something like cholera or tuberculosis yeah. or you know, whatever she dies. She dies of a disease, you know, like why does she have to be the one who suffers and he's the one who gets off, you know. Oh, the world is unjust. It is very unjust. <sighs> you think you'll make it? I think I'll make it. What bother- <laughs> the other thing that bothers me is why does Marius not betray Thernardier? He is such scum, and Marius knows he's scum. his honor. His honor prevents it. Hmm. Do you think that's a character flaw, or do you think that's a virtue of his character? Marius. Yeah. I think both. I think because it's standing in place of what he act, what is actually well. Ooh, I think we're getting to sort of an Antigone situation <laughs> where there's okay. like, which way do I go? But he's trying to give something to his father, give back to his father, and he got that letter and everything. So there's honor to his father or. You know, does he do what is right in the sense of the law and and things like that? So you can at least he's mm-hmm. torn. I like seeing him torn up about it, and it's not an, an easy decision for him. But it's hard for me to. I, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to sit on the fence for this one and say that it's it's a bit of both about the is it a detriment or is it a good thing? I th- I'm kind of with you there as well because then I think about him and I think about Jean Valjean. And the way that Jean Valjean similarly acted honorably, you know, yeah. it was in the reverse where he gave himself up and he didn't give somebody else up, but it was to his detriment, you know, and the idea that he was acting out of honor, um, 
where I see a reflection of Jean Valjean and Marius, that there's that, that youthful idealism is still alive in the old man, except the old man is just trying to survive and provide for his daughter. Whereas Marius is, you know, well, he doesn't have a daughter to provide for, but you know, he, he becomes more of a, of an upstanding individual, so to speak, you know, and he's that, he has that honor and idealism and it's why, the approval, like that, why the Jean Valjean essentially approves of him with Cosette eventually, you know, knowing who he is. I mentioned Gavroche earlier, who is a street urchin. He is Thernardier's uh, son. And how is he symbolic of the city in which he runs rampant? If he is truly a quote, son of Paris, which attributes did he inherit from his mother? I assume his mother in quotes being yeah. Paris. Yeah. So, I will admit to being confused who Gavroche was, mainly because mm-hmm. the street urchins he hangs out with called him Papa. And so I was envisioning, or father, I think it is Papa, him being a man. And so there's like an adult male Gavroche and then a little mm-hmm. Gavroche. So I got very mm-hmm. confused, but it's actually yeah, a child Gavroche that these other street <laughs> urchins call Papa. And so that whole thing with the rats was very mind boggling, but it's okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think it's clear throughout this entire novel. I think if you read Hunchback, which I recommend that that's very much a downer. This is kind of a downer, too, but it it's kind of has yeah, some positive places. things, too. How much Victor Hugo loves Paris, loves France. And I think little Gavroche, even though there are so many seedy sides to Paris, because he has so much freedom to run around and get in places and knows his way about, it's almost as if he knows all the tips and tricks. Because growing up there, it's funny that he was traded somehow um, from the Thenardiers, that he really grew up, I think. And yeah, Paris being his mother I think taught him how to survive you know how to be Mm -hmm. a kid living on the streets he's not been killed or imprisoned so he's gotten away with it which is more than Valjean can say so I think it's it's just interesting to see it's a completely different perspective I think you see injustice on some sides you see um, the criminality with with Tenardier you see um, obviously depravity i guess you could say with him as well and and just depressing circumstances and sickness and things like that but with him it's very much a like fight and survive and do all you can and he he's able to to make it and even has some hangers on so he seems to learn a lot from old mother Paris. yeah and he he dies oh he dies he trying dies to die. get ammunition from a dead national guardsman he's shot by troops so he is very much um, maybe symbolic of that that spirit that Paris had that is found in its people and not necessarily the the government that resides there. You know, if if he's writing this novel, where the heroes of this novel are the people, you know, in that mass sense, you know, the 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 people who were who were on the lower end of the class structure. Such. So there's a there's almost a symbolic death in there that, you know, you know that because, you know, after that, like, you know, it just all starts to fall apart yep. and, and Eponine dies and, and Valjean escapes through the sewers. So it's just the idea that it's symbolic, like this, this revolution is over, like his death is almost the 
it's not that the it's not the event that portends the end, but it is very symbolic in that in that you know there will always be a struggle against authority that will that will do its best to destroy you and you know you know it's sadly sometimes you know that spirit can can be tamped down so um you're right it's a really sad novel in places but because it's essentially like the second chance and the redemption of a man and it ends with his death just naturally like at the end of his life it's not as much of a tragedy as say you know i don't know how hunchback ends but you said that you know. oh yeah well you know, yeah esmeralda dies and whatchamacallit mm. die or does esmeralda die quasimodo definitely does die yeah I'm pretty yeah, sure. So is, is that more of a tragedy in the, in the more traditional sense? That yeah. Well, you just want to see someone make it out okay, but yeah. Yeah. Because um, Jean Valjean, like, it's not a tragedy in that Jean. It's tragedy in many senses because a lot of people do die, but Jean Valjean dies content, fulfilled, mm. and there's where the, that's where there's an uplifting. Yeah. There's an uplift in the ending. So, um, I believe this is your question. Hugo inserts a rather scathing aside about the nature of fame in Part 1, Chapter 1. Prosperity presupposes ability. Jean Valjean is an example of a man who is exceptional in many significant ways, who positively and profoundly affects the lives of people around him, and who lives and dies in absolute obscurity. This portrait is drawn by a man who is an arguably the most famous man in mm. France, literally a legend in his own time. How can fame adversely influence one's ability to do good in the world? How does Jean Valjean safely covet his obscurity, and how does this obscurity contribute to the good deeds Valjean habitually performs? Hmm. I'm going to let that one marinate for myself <laughs> to what's your answer yeah so i think notoriety i i think does it's got its positive aspects and its negative aspects and i think sometimes it gets in the way and you're you honestly are not able to do what you want to do period and i think of i'm going to do like a modern a modern thing here sia do you know who sia is Yes. And so she has and it's interesting because way back when way back as in when I was going to college, she didn't wear the wig. She didn't wear the wig. But I think once she exploded, because she's been around for a while, actually. But once she exploded, she started wearing that wig and, and covering up her face, mainly to have in a uh what's this called go i'm going incognito there we go to be incognito and mm. so in real life she can do things and people aren't going to harass her and things like that i think when you are you've got notoriety or fame sometimes people might question why you might be doing good things you know is it just for are you actually giving back just to give back or is there some sort of thing behind it, some sort of motiva motivation so it's not completely altruistic? And so I, I would say that that might be one of the instances why trying to 
fly under the radar would be good. And it's also another, uh, <laughs> it's another biblical idea where you're not supposed to, you know, shout out, you know, oh, look at me, I'm praying. Oh, look at me, I'm giving alms. Can't recall the exact Bible verse, but basically, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And so I think that there might be some, like, a Christian message there as well a little bit. But, of course, if we were to think realistically, Valjean needs to not have notoriety because the exact thing that he doesn't want to have happen happened and he was just trying to do some good by lifting that cart off that guy so he's just trying to stay under the radar do what he needs to do but not attract attention I think mainly because he knows well I think number one he actually is doing all this stuff altruistically uh i think also though he knows that there's a debt to be repaid so it's almost like faith and good works going hand in hand and then i think also obviously he doesn't want to get arrested again so so let's see the next part was how does he safely covet his other yeah i i feel like he does a good job i mean it's harder for him as a mayor I know he travels. Mm. He travel. Oh, well, sorry, that was later. I don't think he travels as much as mayor. I know he traveled in the when he was Le Uh As mayor, I mean, it seems like he just keeps to himself. Uh, he lets the four woman informant really take control, and mm-hmm. he gives to the people. When he went later as LeBlanc, he stays in for the most part, but he does travel a great deal. And I, I think he's just able to to stay out of the limelight. So yeah. I, I think he's able to do things without people necessarily. I mean, they all know it's him, though, which is really funny. But he's not. He's very uh-huh. humble about it. He's not looking for any sort of uh, recognition or, or thanks. He's just doing it from the goodness of his heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, the I don't know what the expression for the Bible is, but it does make me think of um, the. Uh, at least from the point of view of the Catholics, the uh, deadly sin of pride in, in that sense, that, that there's something self-serving about what you're doing when you're giving to, um, when you're when you're doing a good deed but are enjoying the recognition for it. Um, later in this century, uh, as, as time went on, especially in the United States, you have a lot of very, very rich men donating massive amounts of money to places in the name of what would what we now know as philanthropy. But it's not really done always because they particularly care about the poor or the arts or whatever. It's so they can have a legacy. You know? We remember who Vanderbilt and Carnegie and Rockefeller are because partially because of the money they made and the businesses they started and the business they ran, but also because their names are on buildings and associated with universities and you know like and these sorts of things and you know and it was not it was maybe they wanted to be patrons of the arts or patrons of science or whatever, but at the same time it's like you know hey they I want credit where credit is due, and you know they they didn't shy away from the fact that they were doing it, so you're right what Valjean does here it is a it is a more altruistic sort of yeah. giving it's like you know he's he is he is doing it because it's what you're supposed to do it is virtuous he is you know he's a flawed character. Yeah, you know, but this is a rede- it is your. I think you were right where I was, you know, where you were talking about how it was a redemption arc. 
in a big way for him and and it's through his love for Cosette. It's through some of the deeds he does and indirectly some of the effect he has on some of the people around him as well. You know, he saves somebody's life at the end. It's just, it's, it's very much a, he's doing this because this is the right thing. And we're going to, we'll, we'll wrap up with the musical just like, cause the musical ran for about 15, 18 years before it finally bowed. And then the revivals, yeah. um, went longer than it was expected as well. Uh, what do you attribute? I mean, I can attribute the fact that this novel is so rich in its characterization and its events and everything to the success of the novel itself and the longevity mm. of the novel. What about the musical? What is it about the musical that made it so popular? Ooh. Yeah. 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 Well, love story. Everyone loves a good uh-huh. love story. And I think just this idea of forgiveness and compassion that surrounds Valjean and Javert, I think it's, it's so powerful. And I think really at the center of it is just how compelling a character Valjean is, quite frankly. I think it also taps into some of our own values as Americans. The values we have about the goodness of the of the goodness of people, um, the individual, the rights of the individual. You know, the the there there's something, and it, it, it's not it's not coincidental. I mean, the values and the philosophies espoused within the American Revolution did directly affect the French Revolution. You know, you have the Marquis de Lafayette, for instance, who is just as responsible for our winning over England as, say, George Washington, um, taking what he saw here and bringing it over there and contributing to that cause. So we, we share those values with the French. Mm. And you know this, this you know liberty, equality, fraternity. You know that, that idea, and what you have here, like you know the, the little man standing up. The, there's there are a lot of stories in our in our in our own culture of the little man standing up against the the government fighting or the or the big guy, and fighting for what he or she believes is right, and maybe not always winning, but still there's that passion, and and we really always appreciate that passion as Americans. So I think that's one of the things that like really really kind of represents that that ideal to us and um even though it's a french based musical it it still rings i guess that's why the french helped us out a little bit in the american revolution well, they also hated england there you go <laughs> you know the friend of my the the enemy of my enemy sure. is my friend is is the other part of it you know, it's a political alliance as well but but um because this was, you know, but but there was a there was a sense that we've had a relationship with this country for as long as we've been a country, mm. so you know the, the sense that we liberated them from the Nazis in the in 1945 is where we helped liberate them from the Nazis. It's like a paying us back for paying them back for like you know all the the help they always give us. So, um, but yeah, so um, this is not this is not one I don't. I would love to teach this, but this is a. This is like a course. I sure. mean, it's a huge yep. book. So this is a this is a intricate amount of, of discussion and planning that would take um, a quarter, a semester. You know, like it's a very very long book. Um, but would you recommend it? To- I'd recommend it. I would read it again, though, because it took up you know three weeks of my life. I I would like <laughs> to read another long book before I read this, but I do highly recommend it. I do too. I think this is one of those 
this is one of those books that's like, you know, you've got to read this before you <laughs> before you die. Yeah. You know, that, that there, I think it's an essential. I really do. So, so we don't have any feedback this month. Um, uh, Beak behind the curtain, our recording schedule is a little weird, but uh, because of uh, it's so my fault. People. What we're gonna do is, oh, don't worry about it. We're gonna go right into next episode's pick. And since the next episode is episode thirty, we have another special coming up. Our first special was biography and autobiography in episode ten, and then we did the uh, novelization and expanded universe special in episode twenty. Um, Stella and I had a hard time figuring out what we wanted to do. We have a list of topics that we've been just kind of dumping brainstorming things and dumping them into this doc and 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 what we did was we just uh, stella to her credit suggested to me that we do a twitter poll and we let you guys decide so we picked four four topics we picked short stories bookstores and libraries empathy and literature and books about popular culture and with 42 percent of the vote and the 24 people who voted so thank you everybody who did vote books about popular culture was our winner and we're going to be talking about it. these are books that, in my mind, books about popular culture. This is stuff that is about the making of films, perhaps things about maybe certain movements in, in culture, uh, histories of bands, you know, maybe their biographies of like bands or, or singers or things. So they kind of they can kind of leech over into biographies. They could be books that are about certain industries. They could be sociological or cultural explorations of things so for instance you covered a book uh, about i think it might be two years ago or at least a year ago called super Women yep. by carolyn coca i think that would qualify as well so it's kind of a wide range so we're going to bring we're just going to kind of talk about ones that um that we have read ones that we could recommend um what we would like to see in a book that um covers popular culture so we're going to kind of cover a few different genres and categories and make some recommendations and just kind of have fun just talking about books that we like. You'll hear that in about a month. Um, until then, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Rec Reading Cast. That's R-E-Q Reading Cast. And as always, uh, you can leave us reviews in iTunes and send us emails. And thank you very much for listening and take care. Can you hear the people? Oh. Good night. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, 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 If you're interested in learning more about the books you've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. One day, one day.